Are you enjoying this free audiobook from Scribble.com? You may not know that Scribble has much more than just free audiobooks. Audiobooks, ebooks, we're adding new titles all the time. You can skip these ads and get higher quality audio files by purchasing audiobooks on Scribble. Even better, every audiobook you buy from Scribble comes with the ebook at no additional charge. Visit us at scribble.com. That's S C R I B L dot com. Now, back to the show. Welcome to the podcast presentation of Murder at Avedon Hill, The Chronicles of Aramis Kragen, written and performed by P.G. Holyfield. So now, the story so far. In episode four, our two heroes walked around Abaddon Hill for a bit, meeting several townspeople. No one could offer any aid to Aramis and Aaron in their search for a letter of introduction. Aramis and Aaron also spent some time discussing the priests of Cairn and their bias against one of the children of Aj, the child of war once known as Artus. Chapter 5 begins with Aramis and Aaron standing before the home of Marissa, an herbalist living and working in the quiet town of Avedon Hill. Chapter 5. The Trouble with Moths The Icon of Kaylee, Child of Magic The priests will get their wish, and the magics will fall. Kaylee's stitch, Aruna's thread, the tears in the fabric will flow freely. May Aj ease our suffering at the hands of the Torim. High Priest Colin of the Sisters of Kaylee Aaron peered down at Aramis, not recognizing the term. Doctor. Instead of approaching the herbalist's door, Aramis sat down on a bench facing the nearest garden. Through the door, they could hear someone moving around. He motioned for Aaron to sit down beside him. Aaron suspected Aramis wanted to gather his thoughts before meeting another less-than-helpful townsperson. Also, Aramis never passed up an opportunity for a lesson. What can you tell me about the nature of magic, Aaron? How much time do you plan on us sitting here? I'm attempting to answer your question, young prince. I would like to hear more about what they teach now at Castle Penn on the subject of magic. Aramis referred to the royal court where Aaron Perti had been raised as one of the grandsons of King Renoir Perti. It was also a direct reference to how things had changed in the years since Aramis had served as ironic advisor to King Renoir who at that time was still Prince Wren. At that time, Aramis had been the sole instructor of all the children at royal court. Now the royal family fell under the tutelage of the resident clergy for the most part, leaving only the arts of war and political strategy to the resident Aaronic advisors. The source of all magic is Aj. We were taught that 
divine energy, and its shaping is the only acceptable use of magic in Cairn. Which means... Hermes's face was a calm mask, but Aaron could hear a subtle change in tone in the older man's voice. Which means that the use of magic is controlled by the priests of Cairn. Yes, but we know there are other types of magic. What are they? Well, there, there's druidic magic. This is considered magic that flows directly from Aj, and druids use the land itself as a conduit. Druids tap into this magic and use it to protect the land. What else? Well, there are the powers displayed in, in different ways by your ironic advisors. Aramis clearly expected more. Abilities developed during the years of training as an advisor. And how does this magic differ from the other forms of magic? It's more of a mental discipline. You use the energies within yourself and around others in ways that normal people can't. Good, good. Let's, let's move on. Then you have sorcery. What do the priests of Cairn say about this type of magic? That it comes from that world, and from the demon spawn that inhabit it. That its use is what brought about the War of Man 500 years ago, and what threatened the destruction of Cairn 30 years ago during the last war between you and Grosh. <sighs> yes, and what have you yourself learned about this type of magic? Aaron looked down at the ground. There have been great wizards in Cairn's history, mostly from the old races. Let them one day return to us. Most humans that developed magical abilities became proficient at item crafting, but rarely did they show the aptitude for spell casting that the old races were known for. I know that this type of magic is an energy that can be used for both good and evil, and that it comes from Aj, just as all energy comes from Aj. Aramis smiled. Good, good. I just wanted to make sure that you understand the distinction. The priests of Cairn have worked very hard the last thirty years, distancing themselves from their part in the events surrounding the last Groshian U war. They were more than successful in this, cementing the fear in most people that the use of magic by those other than clergy is a dangerous thing. Aaron finished the thought, and thereby solidifying their power as the as the only legal users of magic. Yes, as a result, most druids can only be found in the deep woods of Grosh or Inara. As for wizards, most have died or have hidden their secrets so well that they would not even recognize each other if they sat in the same room. And those that do still live in the open. Aramis pointed at the sign marked Marissa, town herbalist. Use titles such as herbalist, item brokers, and potion makers. So this Marissa, she's a sorceress. Aramis stood and approached the door. I do not know. She might be a simple seller of potions, or a charm maker. She may, like most that have the ability to sense the river of magic, lack the ability to dip from those waters, simply because she never had the opportunity to learn how to use her talents. Or she may be one that possesses great power. But due to the times we live in, she must hide here in Avedon Hill as an expert of flowers and herbs. And the term doctor. I am sorry. Back to your original question. It is ironic, because in the old church, the clergy used to call eminent theologians doctors. At the same time, it was used as a name for a practitioner of folk magic, or medicine. It was used to distinguish a clerical healer from one of those who uses potions and herb magic. 
Now we use the term doctor for someone who is forced to hide his or her abilities from some of the more zealous priests of Cairn. Aramis opened the door and walked in. Hello, is, is anyone here? Aramis's query was answered with the sounds of metal crashing and glass breaking from across the room. Trig's jaws have you! The curse didn't appear to be directed at Aramis, but at some vials that had either broken or were rolling across the floor in several directions. Aaron walked forward and gathered three small bottles before they fell from a landing that separated the two halves of the great room. The lower half of the shop contained a sitting area and a few books placed on a stand in one corner. The area was rather clean compared to the upper half of the room, obviously the herbalist's work area. Tables were covered with vials, mixing bowls, and other supplies such as cut papers. Shelves along three walls held at least a hundred bottles, some filled with dry ingredients, and others with liquids that varied in color and opacity. Herbs hung from suspended lines between shelves. Aramis recognized several, lungwort, feverfew, lemon balm, and marjoram among them. Sheep horns hung from pegs on the shelves. Aramis guessed that these were used to store preparations made by the herbalist. Overall, the work area looked as if it had been hit by a storm. Marissa stood, arms filled with glass vials. She looked at the two men standing before her with her mouth hanging open, a confused look on her face. She turned away from them without speaking, and as carefully as possible placed the vials on one of the tables in her work area. She walked back and held her hands out to Aaron. He was apparently too slow for her, because Marissa began stomping her left foot and shaking her hands. Aaron gave her a smile and was about to speak, but she didn't look him in the face, instead grabbing the bottles from his hands and walking away from him once more. Once she had placed the additional vials on the table and had ensured their safety, she finally regarded her visitors. They still stood on the lower level, and she made no move to join them. Good morning, gentlemen. I am sorry, but this is a very busy time for me. Is there something you need? Aramis stepped forward. He bowed and unfolded his arms, holding his hands out in front of him. Marissa, my name is Aramis Cragen. I and my student, Aaron, are visitors to Avedon Hill. We were hoping you might be able to help us gain an audience with Lord Avedon. Marissa threw up her hands, turned, and walked away from them to one of her tables. She spoke as she moved. Lord Avedon. Avedon has closed the manor. I can't do anything for you. She looked at Aramis, searching for the name he had just said. Artemis, was it? Aramis took two steps forward, jumped, and landed softly on the raised landing. Marissa's eyes widened as Aramis's robes covered his legs in such a way that to Marissa it must have appeared that Aramis had nearly levitated to the top of the platform. Marissa's hands went to a symbol of Iberian that hung from her belt. Fear momentarily washed across her face, but it quickly passed. The calm look on Aramis's face seemed to put her at ease after a moment. Aaron moved over to the stairs, but did not climb them. He did not want to alarm the woman further. Aramis, corrected the monk. From the sound of her voice, Aramis believed Marissa was a little younger than himself, but the lines around her eyes made her look older than her probable years. Marissa's hair was black, but streaked with thick sections of white. Aramis found the lack of stray gray hairs interesting. Marissa's clothing looked to be hand-me-downs from another time. Dark, purple, thick fabric lined on the edges with various common gems. The dress looked to be decades old. Its many patches seemed to be holding the garment together. We know Lord Avedon has closed his manor. 
We need a letter of introduction from someone in town. Someone who will vouch for us. Ah, I see. Marissa placed some additional distance between herself and Aramis by walking around one of her work tables. Aramis didn't move from his position. I don't know you. She looked over the mess on her table before her. And I am far too busy to get to know you. Aramis sensed something in the woman's voice. He pressed on. Marissa, you you look tired. What's wrong? Marissa placed her hands on the table in front of her. Fatigue had overcome any fear she might have had moments before. That isn't your concern. I'm working on... She stopped speaking, realizing she hadn't meant to even say that much. From your supplies, your merchandise, it appears that you are very good at your work. Why is this particular potion giving you issues? I never said anything about a potion. Miramis shrugged, but didn't move. Marissa looked into the monk's eyes for a moment, and then sighed. Miramis realized a door was opening for them. I can only do so much, because I lack a prime component for the potion. Aaron spoke for the first time. Maybe we can help you. Marissa looked over at Aaron, a tired smile on her face. Young man, I doubt that. What is the potion for? That is none of your concern, Aramis. True true enough. We apologize for the inconvenience. We, we will leave you now. Aramis ignored a snort that came from the direction of Aaron. He turned towards the steps that led to the lower half of the room, but did not move to them. But my student is right. We might be able to help you. If I had to guess, this is something no one else in town will be able to help you with. Marissa's eyes moved from Aramis to Aaron and back again. What do you mean? Only that everyone we have met thus far seems too busy with their own lives to help anyone else. We are stuck here with nothing to do until we can arrange a meeting with Lord Avedon. We can help you if this is something that is within our power. Oh, I see. Marissa looked as if she was trying to weigh her options, but it appeared that she didn't have any. Fine, I'll make you a deal. You said you needed a letter of introduction? The two men nodded in unison. I need a king's head moth. Aaron ran his hands through his blonde hair. Um, a moth? Marissa sighed even more heavily, as if it was too much effort to explain anything to the men. Not just a moth, a king's head moth. There are strong potions you can create with a king's head moth. Is there some sort of merchant that sells these creatures? Merchant? If this was some commodity I could buy, I wouldn't need you, now would I? No, you have to find them. There is a series of caves to the east of town... The king's head is usually found living in these caves. They like the cool air there during the summer. The problem is that this is not the best time of year to find them. I've been out there twice in the last week and have had no luck. They die off in the winter? Yes. Nearly a month has passed since they usually start dying out, I believe. But I am not an animal expert. I know herbs. But powerful potions make use of the king's head moth, and I need one. You realize I am taking a risk just telling you this. Aramis nodded. You know that I am not an agent of the church, if that is your concern. At this point, you could be creating a poison draft for all I care. Aramis smiled at Aaron's enthusiasm. Marissa, we will find this moth for you. I am sure you have a great need if you are allowing us to help you. We shall return as soon as we can.
Before they left the shop, Marissa gave them a small cage about the size of a lantern. The wire mesh of the lantern would easily contain live insects. As they walked, Aaron couldn't contain himself. Finally, something to do. I hope we at least encounter some animals or, or bandits. I need to kill something. <laughs> kill something. I see. You hid something back there. Very perceptive, Aaron. What was it? You said that no one in town would help her. You indicated that it was because people wouldn't make time to help. But there was something more. I also meant I believe she cannot ask for help. While I believe her when she says she is doing nothing wrong, there's definitely a reason she could not tell us about the potion she is working on. It was not simply because we are strangers. The two men reached the town gate. Cletus met them with a laugh. <laughs> Leaving so soon, I thought you'd make it at least a couple of days. For some odd reason, Aaron sensed that Aramis liked the gruff gatekeeper. Aaron still had a stain from Cletus's spittle on one of his boots. Aaron did not share his mentor's view of the man. We are not leaving for very long. We have a little side trip to make. I do have a question for you, though. Yeah, Sir Aramis. Constable Lewis, you mentioned he had been relegated to guard duty because he was unsuccessful in his investigation. Cletus nodded. How long was he given to investigate this murder? Four days, I believe. Time enough to question most of the townspeople. He had trouble connecting anyone to the murder, so he began talking to Lord Avedon's children against Lord Avedon's wishes. You said earlier today that Lord Avedon has... Aramis pulled out a small ledger, just larger than his hands, and opened it to a page. Aaron realized that Aramis must have written some notes while he had unpacked at the inn. Five children. How, how old are they? Let's see, Richard is the oldest. He's 18, I believe. Edward is the next male in line. He's 16, maybe. Karen's the oldest daughter. She's 17, and Julienne is 13, and John is just older than that. Thank you, Cletus. How far are the caves east of town? Cletus raised an eyebrow at the mention of caves, but answered without a question of his own. You should be able to get there and back before dinner. Take the first true left-hand path leading up to the foothills. You'll eventually be able to see the caves from the path. You will let us in when we return, correct? <laughs> Why not? I'm already in trouble with Constable Lewis, and I'm sure I'll eventually hear about this from Lord Avedon. But until then, I have some of the best toback in all of care. <laughs> Aramis and Aaron left the township of Avedon Hill and made their way east, continuing along the same road that had brought them to the town. Aaron had a feeling of uneasiness as they traveled. He half expected an attack from the trees that lined the road. Aramis apparently did not share his fears, as he spent much of his time cutting pieces of apple and eating them as they walked. They reached the path Cletus had spoken of without incident. The path wound its way north into the foothills of the Lancis Mountains. To the northwest, Aaron could see Mount Olviar. The mountains ran their course across the entire horizon. It was the first time Aaron realized how difficult it must have been for Lord Avedon's ancestors to carve a path through the mountains, and how important it was for them to gain access to that path. 
An apple and a pouch of walnuts later, Aramis and Aaron found themselves in front of a cave. There were several other cave entrances around them, some at the base of the small mountain before them, others higher up that they would only be able to access after some climbing. What are those caves? I do not know. Most of those entrances do not look natural. Possibly some of the same miners that built Avedon Hill worked in these mountains as well. Or maybe they are old enough to have been built by dwarves. The Osir Dwarf Clan is still supposed to live in several areas of the Lantis Mountains, although, to my knowledge, they do not interact with humans at all. Other than the barbarian clans of Inara, are there any humans that the old races interact with? Not openly, in any case. Come on, we should, we should take a closer look. Aaron thought Aramis was dodging the question, but he was used to that. They entered the cave closest to them. After moving down a long passage, they found themselves in a larger cavern. A pond took up most of the cavern's open area. There was no need to light a torch, as a soft green glow rose from the water to safely illuminate the cave. Aaron was surprised at the light. Some sort of plant life? Algae? I'm not sure. Aramis bent down and looked into the water. Some sort of sediment. As they moved further into the cave, they saw that the walls glowed in areas as well. I do not know what these rocks are, but it appears that as the walls erode, the rocks end up in that pond and they give off this light. Interesting. Aramis found several of the stones intact at the edge of the pond and picked them up. He studied them in the palm of his hand. They glowed brightly, smaller versions of the minerals jetting out along the walls of the cave. He emptied some of the walnuts out of the leather pouch at his belt and placed the rocks inside. (laughs) You never know when you might need a little light. There were no signs of animal life within the cavern. No tracks, no droppings, no bones. The two men made their way around the pond to an opening at the opposite side of the cave. It opened to a path that wound its way up and then split in two different directions. Do you think all these caves are connected? A lot of them, most likely, if Marissa can safely navigate through these caves. Hopefully we have little to worry about. Let us continue. They proceeded up the path and took the right-hand branch. It continued on, past several twists and turns until it opened up into another cave, this one with a smaller but deeper pond. There were some signs of animal life in this cave. Some small animals, dogs possibly, had at one time made this cave their home. The signs were old, however. They backtracked and headed down the left branch. It eventually opened up into another cavern. There was a much smaller pool of water in this area, and very little light. Aramis pulled out the stones he had collected, He then had Aaron pull out the cage Marissa had given them. Aramis opened the small door of the cage and placed the rocks inside. Aramis held the makeshift lantern above his head. The light from the rocks did not illuminate the area very much, but did allow them to walk safely down to the center of the cave. The ceiling in this cavern was much higher than in the other caves they had searched. Again, there was little sign of animal presence. Aramis bent down and studied the ground near the edge of the water. Well, we might have answered one question. What is it? Aramis picked up something from the ground and stood up. He held open his hand and showed his discovery to Aaron. Aramis held a moth, a very large and very dead moth. Is it a king's head moth? Aramis pointed to a black patch on the white moth's back. I guess to some, these these markings look like a crown. So yes, I, I believe it is. Great, let's get back to town then. Aramis didn't look pleased, however. Aaron asked, What's wrong? 
While she did not make the distinction, I believe Marissa requires a live moth. Oh, well, should we keep looking or take this to... The look on Aramis's face silenced Aaron. His right hand instinctively went to the sword hilt on his left hip. What is it? Did you hear so? Aaron was interrupted by a kick from Aramis that sent him backwards to the ground. Before he could yell, Aaron saw a large, dark mass fly over his body and land on his friend. Aaron drew his sword and was on one knee in little more than an instant, but he knew he did not have time to help Aramis. The blood rushing to his head made his temple pulse. He was immediately aware of the two other forms behind him. No longer silent, the growls of the wolves echoed in the cave. Aaron jumped to his feet to meet this threat, a smile etched on his face. You have chosen the wrong day for this fight. Aramis had not felt the wolf's presence until it was almost too late. His anger at not sensing the danger, however, did nothing to delay his action. Aramis saw the outline of the wolf leaping through the air at Aaron's exposed back. As Aaron fell below the arc of the animal's attack, Aramis saw the look of surprise in the wolf's eyes, eyes now illuminated by the light of Aramis's lantern. From the edge of his consciousness, Aramis sensed the beast's pleasure as a second target appeared before it. Even in darkness and at his advancing age, Aramis Cragen was a more formidable opponent than the beast could have imagined. Claws expecting to rend skin from bone met only cloth and silk. If Aaron hadn't turned to face the two smaller wolves now poised to attack, he would have seen the larger beast and Aramis Cragen fall to the ground in one blurred heap. Aramis's robes were a better defense than any shield that the wolf might have encountered before that day. The robes were sewn in such a way that Aramis was able to grasp its sides and roll with the great wolf's attack, engulfing most of its enormous form with layers of material. The wolf snapped its jaws in several directions in an attempt to taste the flesh it could so clearly smell. Aramis had rolled with the beast's attack, and even with the wolf entangled partially in his robes, Aramis had gained leverage and had his feet against the side of the beast. Teeth nearly found muscle and tendon, but by the third jaw snap, Aramis had reached the point where he was able to push off his back, using his feet to propel the wolf onward. The momentum of the wolf's thrashing, aided by the kick of the monk, sent the monster some three body lengths away into the stone wall of the cavern. Aramis continued the flow of his roll until he was on his feet facing the large beast, dagger in one hand, sigh in the other. He had succeeded defending himself against the wolf's first attack, but now Aramis found himself winded, breathing heavily, staring completely amazed at the sheer size of the animal before him. The beast was at least twice the size of the wolves Aaron faced on the other side of the cave. Aramis also sensed an intelligence in the beast. It focused its eyes, first on Aramis, then on the battle between Aaron and its two wolf companions, then back to Aramis, clearly assessing the situation. Aramis watched as the beast snapped its jaws, spitting out the black silk that it had ripped from the monk's robes. The soft light produced by the lantern now on its side on the ground, gave the beast a greenish hue. The beast growled once, reared back on its hind legs, and whipped its head from side to side. As Aramis tried to slow his racing heart, the beast decided upon its next move. It fell back on all fours and howled, prepared for its next attack. By that time, Aramis had realized 
he was not facing a wolf at all. Aaron Perti was in his element. He had been trained since the age of eight to defend himself against both man and beast. While the darkness should have evened the battle to some extent, Aaron Perti exulted as if he were an untouchable foe. Where Aramis Cragen waited on an attack, Aaron launched one of his own. The wolves, completely unprepared, had no idea how to counter the charging threat about to reach them. Before they could recover, Aaron barreled into the beasts. The two wolves had placed themselves too close to each other. The single charge had left one wolf dead in an instant, sliced from chest to neck from Aaron's own bite, a longsword he had named Wildfire. The second wolf had attempted to rise up to meet the human with paws and maw, but Aaron's right side had crashed into the animal before it could reach its intended position. Both man and beast fell to the ground. The wolf flipped to his feet before Aaron had a chance to do so, but the wolf found itself facing away from its intended meal. The wolf felt blade enter one of its back legs as it turned towards its prey. It was a glancing blow, with little strength, but it was enough to allow Aaron to safely reach his feet. Aaron was able to wait in relative safety for the wolf's next attack. It came, and was met with steel that threw the animal back. The wolf attempted another charge, but instead collapsed in a pool of water at the center of the cave. The wolf tried to raise its head out of the water, but failed, unable to place pressure on hind legs nearly severed by Aaron's blade. Shock overwhelmed the creature before it had a chance to throw itself at the pool's edge. In moments, the animal's heart stopped beating before it even had a chance to drown. Aaron turned to find Aramis facing what he assumed was the largest wolf he had ever seen. He could make out Aramis's tattered robes, and before he could move towards his friend, the beast howled. Aaron knew he would not be able to reach Aramis before the beast charged. But the beast did not attack Aramis. Instead, it leaped over the pool and escaped down a passage the two men had not yet explored. Aramis, still panting, dropped to a sitting position on the cavern floor. Bayage! What was that? Aaron shouted as he ran over to his friend. Aramis regained control over his breathing and was soon back on his feet. We should get moving. We will talk later. They grabbed the carcass of the moth and placed it in the cage. They exited the way they had come, down a passage opposite the one the beast had escaped. When they saw sky again, they both breathed more easily. The sun had traveled further along its daily journey, but it was still just past midday. They were halfway back to town before Aramis agreed to slow down enough to talk. What was that? If I had to guess... I would say it was a moon beast. What? They, they're they not just stories? There is much in Cairn that is not just stories. I have seen moon beasts, but none were ever that large. And I've never seen any that traveled during the day, even in the darkness of caves. Are you injured? Aramis checked his tattered robes. Only my clothing. And my pride. Thank you for saving me back there. I am upset it even got that close. I did not sense its presence in the cave until it was almost too late. The two men made it back to town without incident. Cletus raised an eyebrow at Aramis's robes. 
but apparently understood when it was unwise to ask questions. They went directly back to Marissa's shop, bypassing the inn and a fresh set of clothes. Of course it has to be alive. You should have known that, monk. I thought as much, but I had to be sure. I think the weather has turned. It is too cold for us to find a live moth. Well, you'd better get out there and keep looking. This potion requires a live king's head moth, and that's what I require if you want to get that letter of introduction. Of course. Doctor. Marissa started at the reference to her magical powers. Watch yourself, monk. You do not understand of what you speak. Aramis led Aaron to the door of the shop. He paused to brush off some of the dirt from his robes. Oh, I understand full well, Marissa. Full well. We will return with your moth. The encounter at the cave had left both men drained. They took a break from their search and returned to their room at the inn. Following a short meal, Aramis ordered Aaron to rest for a psych. So relegated to searching for small winged creatures, not uh, exactly saving the world, is it? Aramis Cragen allowed his eyes to leave Aaron, who was resting comfortably on his bed, and focus on the man who had spoken. We all play our small part in the cycle, Gareth. Except for you, of course. Gareth Beckwin laughed. <laughs> I'm playing my part as well, Ari, to keep you on the path. Aramis closed his eyes, knowing it didn't matter if his eyes were open or not. For Gareth Beckwin wasn't really there. It's been a while. What, a year? Don't ask me, Ari. You are the one who has conjured me. Gareth Beckwin, while he had lived, had been Aramis Cragen's best friend. They had arrived at Thorn's Way on the same day and had been tested as a pair by the Aaronic Brotherhood, as was their way. The testing process ensured the two men were worthy of inclusion in the Brotherhood, and the process linked them for life, another goal of the testing. What Aramis had not realized at the time was that the link between a tested pair did not end with death. Gareth had been with Aramis Cragen since his death 29 years before. I did not conjure you. Feel free to move on to your rightful place by Thorn Twoblade's side. What, and wait until the end of the age when Thorn Twoblade and his advisors will return to ensure Cairn survives its move to the next age? How boring would that be? Aramis believed that Gareth was only a manifestation of his conscience. Even so, he had missed his old friend. He opened his eyes to make sure that Aaron still slept. Gareth sat in a nearby chair. He hadn't aged a day, and wore the green and brown uniform that he had worn as an advisor for Duke Alandus Pell. It was the same uniform Gareth had worn the last time they had seen each other. You look well. And you look weathered. Your years in seclusion did you no favors. You still have some brown left on that head, though. Aramis smiled. I miss you, old friend. Gareth lost his own smile. Old friend, I died too young to ever become your old friend now, didn't I? 
Gareth Beckwin had lost his life at the hands of an assassin's poisoned blade. Well, to me, you are an old friend. What? Aaron's voice filled the air, breaking Aramis out of his reverie. Who are you talking to, Aramis? Aaron still had his eyes closed. He was only half awake. Aramis looked over to Gareth, but he was gone. Just talking out loud. In any case, it's time to get moving. Moths don't catch themselves. listening to Murder at Avedon Hill. Please visit pgholyfield.com for more information on this novel and the author. Most of the music in this podcast provided by Shira Common through magnitude.com. Magnitude.com, they are not evil. Additional music generously provided by Kevin McLeod through incompetech.com. This podcast is copyright 2007. P.G. Holyfield and is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 2.5 license.